The Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Email us at theradicalsecular at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at radical underscore secular. Follow us on Twitter at Radical Secular. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hello and welcome back to The Radical Secular. I'm Christoph Defoe. And I'm Sean Prophet. Today, we're going to talk to you about a Netflix documentary, a docudrama really, called The Social Dilemma. It's getting really popular. My friend Tim recommended it. Tim always gets a big shout out from us because he is the guy who does all our artwork for the show, and he is just fantastic. Um, We're also going to talk to you about a CNN opinion piece about that gets at the sort of political and social divide that is plaguing in America, and is also related to that uh, docudrama and the uh, social dilemma. Um, And then we're going to get into our more sort of broad Broader topics. We're going to talk to you about recovering from republicanism. Fascinating. We're going to also talk to you about something called functional slash rational libertarianism. Also fascinating. Um, we're going to talk to you about, um, from a psychological perspective, we're going to talk about the cognitive biases that we all deal with, self-interest and self-actualization. And we're going to talk to you about uh, addiction, treatment, and Alcoholics Anonymous. And to help us talk about all that today, we have a guest, and she's a PhD candidate in uh, human and organizational psychology at Turo University. I'm just going to straight up read this now. She holds a Master of Social Work from Fordham University and a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Rutgers University. Among other roles, she's a founder and managing clinical director of her own psychotherapy practice, and she's a program director of two residential substance abuse treatment facilities. She's also a Manhattan resident, recovering Republican, devoted wife, stepmom, pet parent, and moral uh, comics enthusiast. We are pleased to welcome Margaret Walker to the Radical Secular. So happy to be here. Awesome. And she actually goes by Meg, I guess. Um, so we'll call her Meg. <laughs> uh, we're really happy to have you here, Meg. Thanks for being here. But before we get into the show, I want to remind everybody out there to make sure that you subscribe to this channel. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that big red button. You can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, please subscribe there. Um, and look, if you like the show and you want to, and if you consider yourself to be radically secular, you should give us a five-star rating and tell your friends and your family. Uh, word of mouth really, 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 really Really matters. Um, also, I want to plug the Just Word Fallacy Medium publication. It is a narrative companion to the Radical Secular, where we publish weekly articles from progressive, diverse authors related to politi- uh, politics, religion, justice, the sort of things that we talk about on the show, but with perhaps a wider purview. Uh, the link is in the show notes. Now, let's get into the shirts. This is going to be an interesting topic, um, a little bit different this week, but uh, not from me. I'm wearing a shirt that I got also from No Gods, No Masters, like I did last week. And it is like, the Jesus fish turned into a rocket ship and it says science because we love science on this show. And also we're going to talk about psychology today, which is a science. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. There it is. And uh, all right, Sean, uh, should, how about you? Well, I, I think you must've read my mind because look what <laughs> I have on my shirt today. Nice. Oh, that's fantastic. Beautiful. Says Hale Sagan and, of course, uh, Carl Sagan. If there were a patron saint of science, he would be it. But we don't believe in saints. so. Um, but we can appropriate religious metaphor whenever we feel like it because that's what we do here on The Radical Secular. We make our own rules. <laughs> that's right. That's what we're all about here. That's what we're all about here. We're, we are radically secular. Um, also, all right. So now Meg is going to go, and this is, this is going to be a little bit of a twist on how we usually do this. 
right, so I actually don't wear t-shirts. Um, I also don't wear any branded clothing either. Um, and it's, it's by design. Um, I actively hate labels and I don't like people making assumptions about me. Uh, and I know that basically how we present ourselves to the world tells people how to perceive us. And so in order to avoid that and allow myself to be seen as exactly who I am, I don't wear any t-shirts and I don't wear anything that has any sort of logo on it. I think yeah. See, like I, I told you, Sean, that the like the, there's a reason behind it. It's legit. It's legit. <laughs> didn't, it's, like, didn't, uh, didn't Naomi Klein write a book called No Logo? Perhaps I'm not, I'm I, not even I, sure. I, I I'm not sure if I have the author right, but I know there's a there's a book called No Logo, and it's it's, it's basically anti corporatist. You know, kind of making that same point about um, people. You know, having falling into these identities, corporate identities, and giving their you know lending themselves and their uh, their personality to support you know basically do unpaid advertising for uh, some corporate. Yeah, that was the second part. Is uh, you pay me. To <laughs> yeah, you know, that's really interesting because I do this so on my car. I always, I, I always, I, one of the things that I notice is I'm driving around and everyone, their license plate frame is always 99% of the time is a, is just where they bought the car. So you're driving around advertising like, you know, Joe Schmo's BMW or whatever. And I'm like, why not spend $10 and even just get a black one? Right. I mean, right. Mine actually says Black Lives Matter on it. Um, mm -hmm. But you don't I got that was custom made, but you don't have to do that. That, that cost me, by the way, like twenty five dollars. It wasn't like it was like a fortune. Like, but you get it. You get one for, for fucking ten dollars. Right. And just slap it on there. And you're not walking around like uh, sort of advertising Saturns or whatever, you know, when I was living in Jersey. They were actually illegal. Those were the uh, the faux tickets you'd get when they pull you over and not want to give you a ticket for speeding. Ah, yes. Blocking your license plate. Oh. Interesting. <laughs> Fucking fascists. <laughs> at, <laughs> at least you could do is just take the take the, the the dealer license plate frame off entirely. That's the first thing yeah, you do. You know exactly. Just take it off, right? I mean, you as soon as my plate, that. as soon as my tags come from the state, right? I got to go out there and put that on. So I'm going to take that dealer plate right off at that point. You know <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, People often, because I, I am very much this way, they're like, are you really angry at a lot of stuff? I'm like, I'm actually not. I just don't like to be forced to do things that I haven't been asked to do. Uh, you fit in really well here because uh, Sean Sean is not is forever being to being uh, talking about and correctly talking about the sort of tone policing out there on the internets, right? Because he and I are, you know, and, and admittedly we have a hard edge because we're really passionate about this. And frankly, sometimes if you want to rattle the cage and get people to actually pay attention to issues that are very serious, uh, that's why we said that's what. That's why we say defund the police, right? Because it's like, right, it gets people's attention. It, it, that's half of the point. And, and so, you know, we're big on not tone policing here. Um, and uh, speaking of which, I think, and segue is um, and talk, talk about libertarianism and republicanism, right? Uh, there is no more uh, tone policing than A, the Republican right, and then B, um, uh, all the, the, the liberal left, frankly, right, is, is really big on the tone policing as well. So you really get that from both ends. But uh, for the purpose of our discussion here, because we have Meg here and because actually Sean and I are both people who had grew up in conservative environments ourselves, I think it's a really apt 
time to talk about this sort of uh, recovering from republicanism. And I, and I really am interested to hear, Meg, this idea of uh, functional libertarianism. Like, what do you mean by that? But uh, we'll get into that. But go ahead. Uh, sure, kick it sure. off. Um, I'm an odd bird. So I was raised, you know, super, super conservative. My family was here pre-Mayflower, like we were Dutch fur traders. So we've been here forever. We're like the bluest of the bluest of the blue, right? And of course that means we are Protestant, Episcopal, and Republican. Um, it really just, it was a cultural part of my life. It had very little to do with me actually thinking about it. And when I went to Rutgers, I was introduced frequently as, this is Meg, my Republican friend. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so what that really did, it was a trial by fire. I really had to hone why I supported this party, who I was, why I supported it, my positions on certain issues. Um, and as I said earlier, I actually worked for the GOP. Uh, but when I worked for the GOP, I worked for the Republican Pro-Choice Coalition. So my position in the Republican Party had always been maximize personal freedom. Keep your laws away from me as much as possible, right? I understand everybody, that's how I transitioned into libertarianism. When the Republican Party, it became clear they had no beliefs anymore. This was not there was no political position. This was a moral kind of, they come from a place of, of morality. And that's not who I am. I'm an atheist, right? <laughs> I'm an atheist. So the whole, <laughs> the whole, um, all the religious rights stuff, slowly like Southern strategy, just all these things. I couldn't make excuses anymore. Um, I had just moved to Manhattan when I changed my party affiliation. And I remembered when I landed here, I actually got a congratulatory letter from the Republican Party. Like, you are so courageous. Look at you moving to New York City and saying you're <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> Going into the urban jungle, you know. Oh, like, boy. <laughs> oh, God. Right? Where they're going to... They're going to consume me, which is kind of what we have going on right now in media. Neither here nor there. But, uh, but so the same thinking kept applying, right? I kept thinking to myself, I want, and I don't think anyone would argue against this. We all want as much freedom as we can possibly get, right? And so that means in almost all metrics, when you measure it, I'm a libertarian. Then I started thinking about libertarianism. And a friend of mine is actually a founder of the Free State Project. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. Okay, in New Hampshire, uh, he happens to be a very successful uh, tech entrepreneur who got out of a really good deal, very young, and had lots of money to burn. And his passion was libertarianism. So he bought a massive plot of land in New Hampshire, which was to become a libertarian utopia. And ah. there, are, there are thousands of people living there right now. Um, and it's called the Free State Project. And this is where my shift started. I remember having a conversation with him about this. 
And he's like, well, why don't you just, you know, come join, like, we, we can all move to an island. No laws, no rules. I'm like, cool. I want to corner all of the water and it's all going to be mine. And you guys are going to have to do whatever I want in order to get water to survive. That is the end point of libertarianism. Ah, yes, no question about it. We music agree. to our oh, music uh, to our ears. Yes, that is the inevitable endpoint. You can't. Oh, and that is just a logical conclusion. And yeah. where where there's water coming in, there's sewage going out, right? So you can obviously dump your sewage on anybody's property because you know we're all free to do whatever we want. Yeah, you have to accept what humanity is, right? And communism does not accept what humanity is. Um, libertarianism. Any sort of fundamentalist belief, the extremes, um, human beings are selfish and self-centered. And if they are not working their entire lives to be less selfish and self-centered, then they create what we have right now, right? Uh, the, the cultural climate we're in right now all springs from this. Um, so my rational libertarianism came from thinking about I still want maximum freedom, so long as it does not impinge on the freedom of others. What is freedom? Is healthcare freedom? Are you free if you don't have healthcare? Are you free no. if you don't have an education? Are you free if you can't get down your road because nobody's plowed it, or the garbage is piled up and you have rats infesting you know, your entire house. So my concept of freedom evolved um, because the position is purely theoretical. And when you come from a purely theoretical standpoint, it never bears much resemblance to the reality of it. Wow, that you know, that's the, I, I really wanted to sort of talk a little bit about what you said because uh, ba my own fault that we uh, that we skipped over the, the the sort of CNN opinion piece because I think that really dovetails really well with what you're talking about here because you're talking we're talking you're talking about libertarianism and we agree incidentally as more as a conceptual idea right so like it's about it's about freedom and but in this sort of pure non-practical sense in this sort of just abstract sense right and when and that is a, and that is i think sean will agree with this and with uh, with with some different thoughts but uh that is the one of the biggest problems deontological sort of perspective what you get from you tend to get from the extremes but certainly from the extreme right is this idea that individual rights matter more than practical outcomes right sort of id these sort of broad ideas and so what you end up with is we have a bunch of people like i mean i'm a functional guy right i care about how what i think and what i say i connect i care about how that impacts actual people's lives right actual people's lives and and we are divided in this country, I think, in a large part, that divide can be made along those lines, right? It could be made along the people who think about things functionally and people who think about things sort of in these yeah, abstract terms. Of thinking of things functionally, right? Like they have distance. My parents are a great example of this, right? Their daughter works with the poorest of the poor of the poor, right? where mothers um, have their children pulled from their homes for the most minor issue. 
mm. right? And, and where the system re-traumatizes these people over and over again. It's terrific. I spend all day long working to kind of help the community. She still does not believe that these things happen. When I tell her that women of color are disenfranchised from their own motherhood at rates you can't possibly imagine, she's like, no. Well, yes. Yes. If you I, will come in and take your child, if you tested positive for cannabis. Yeah. I want to bring up something. Only if you're a woman of color. Exactly. I want to bring up something philosophically that I think underpins all of this. Well, uh, number one, of course, it, it's the till it happens to you. Uh, that Lady Lady Gaga song, which is really great. Um, that that is really uh, the disconnect that happens with many people who are you know disconnected from this. But it, it's it's a larger issue. If you really want to piss off a right libertarian, just bring up the tragedy of the commons, or utilitarianism Absolutely. in general. Okay, and where there's there has to be the some account. Problem. The trolley <laughs> problem. We talk about that all the time. <laughs> But yeah, that's it's 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 the tragedy of the commons how, where everything is interrelated. You know, your use of water or your dumping of sewage, or you know, uh, the it, it gets right even down into what you're talking about in terms of social work, where you're working with these disadvantaged families and and mothers and children and things like that. They are disadvantaged because of policies that uh, the people like your mom benefit from, for example, and biases, right? Uh, in my own personal life, we have brought my stepson's mom to court for assaulting her boyfriend in front of the child, for leaving the child for eight or more hours a day alone. Um, any of those, either of those would have had the child removed immediately um, out of the mother's care where I work. That right, right. Instantly. She's tiny. She's white. Exactly. We talk about this sort of these, these double standards that we have, right? I mean, this is what white privilege is. This is what structural racism is, is that there is two sets of rules. And in fact, maybe not even two. There's multiple sets of rules it, it, because there's also how much money you have. You get your own sets of rules. Even if you're white, you get, you get better, uh, you get worse rules than the rich people who are white, right? Um, yeah. Even there, right? So, and I think again, and I, I, I read this read this article earlier today, uh, and it, he really talks about in the article, the CNN article about this sort of ideological divide. Yes, in America, um, but I think we're like what we're talking about here really drills down to what that means as a practical matter, right? Mm -hmm. I'm in a unique perspective, right? Like I was raised by millionaires. I'm the whitest human being ever, but I chose to go into a field because I had the luxury of being able to make that choice that I'm not ever gonna make money. I have tons of education that wasn't cheap, right? So I chose to go into this, so I see each different level of it. I mean, all of my employees are required to have master's degrees. The maximum salary the state will allow me to pay them is $60,000 a year. Wow. Just mad. I mean, it's just like madness. It, what, what behavior do we 
as a society, as a culture, um, sort of value and reward, right? Uh, and, and this gets into the charity issue that we talked a little bit in the beginning of the beginning of the before we started talking here on before we started recording is that right? You have this 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 idea that uh, you know, and this gets interestingly into our into the our hierarchy discussion that we have all the time on this say. show, right? And uh, and I should probably just let you handle it, uh, Sean. Go ahead. Well, this is the point is that, you know, we sort of assume and this is this is in this article that talks about this, that we assume that if the other side just had the information, if they just knew these things that was that were going on, that they would they would obviously change their minds. But that's not the case at all. What's going on is that, you know, teachers, social workers and, you know, the helping professions, psychologists, you know, all of these these things, these are. Uh, these are people who will help those who are on the lower rungs of the ladder rise. Who and 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 the Republicans do not want that. The this is a cult of hierarchy and uh, is a cult of feudalism. And those who are on top do not want to see those at the bottom benefit. So, for example, putting people in a double bind situation where you know their student loans are barely going to be covered by their salary. You know that's exactly the kind of double bind. Oh, get, get rid of loan forgiveness. Yeah. So you, you trap these people who these are the people we should be supporting. We should be paying teachers and social workers 100,000 plus. Okay. Exactly. And especially if you require a PhD. I mean, come on, you know, so uh, you're for good outcomes, right? Yeah, but they're not all these problems. You need talented people. Yeah, they don't want them solved. And that's, that's the, the, and that's the bottom line, Sean. That's the bottom line that they don't want the problem solved. They're not interested in that. But it's so expensive. The trillions of dollars we lose as a result of addiction on the on a on an almost annual basis, and trillions of dollars in lost revenue from employers, um, from accidents, from jail, from treatment, you name it, trillion dollars. And we, we, talk, we, we, we talked about this last week, too, which is basically like this sort of opportunity cost that's lost, right? Because mm -hmm. these, these, these people growing up in these environments where they don't have the opportunity or the resources, right? This could be the next brilliant X or the next brilliant Y, right? And we don't know that because these people are not able to self-actualize, which is an interesting conversation that we're going to talk about later. But they're not able to self-actualize right. because they they do not have their base needs met. And mm -hmm. what's really wild about this is that even from, the, and I say this a lot, even from the most selfish position ever, and that's what you were kind of talking about, Meg, right? It would save money. It would yeah. save money, right? It's like just, it's not it's even just about Right? Like you want to you be pragmatic? Give me $10 million and I will develop a program that will produce outcomes that will pay for itself inside of two years. And you can take that model and you could, you could use it nationwide and we could eradicate the problem and we could have, you know, everything works out better, but we don't do it. It's ridiculous. This is why we can't negotiate. You know, I was thinking to myself, because I was looking at anytime there is a, uh, you know, one of these articles about, you know, we're a divided country. By the way, I hate that. It's fucking oh, bullshit. God, fucking We're not a divided shit. country. We're a country under attack by an internal enemy of white supremacy. Okay, that's what's going on here. Uh, uh, wealth and white supremacy. But, you know, and that, this is why you can't negotiate because you could say to them, hey, and, and actually, by the way, there have been pockets, like, for example, in Utah and some other states, they have figured out that giving people homes is cheaper than dealing with the social problems of homelessness. Yes, yes. all these things we know. We give someone a stable home, 
the outcomes are far better. We actually don't force them to stop using entirely. They're more likely to recover, right? Mm -hmm. You give them somewhere to live, you give them something to eat, and as long as they're able to come to the determination on their own, they get better. It goes back absolutely to, fascinating. Go ahead, it, Sean. Sorry. It goes back to the rat park analogy. Who's the researcher who developed that about addiction? Uh, it's a, a new model of addiction, basically, where they put rats into a, a bear cage and they immediately would prefer the, uh, you know, the opium laced water or whatever it is. But you put them into a, uh, you know, a, a social environment with lots of things to do and good food. And they, they don't even touch the, uh, the opiate laced uh, water. So fascinating. Can I bless your heart moment? The study there you're referencing is not well designed. Um, oh, so that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, it was a very sexy TED talk. Um, <laughs> I, I love to be corrected though. I mean, that means Absolutely. I learned something. Sorry. Well, it's a pet peeve of mine because it really oversimplifies it, right? Addiction and dependence and suicidality occur with people who are well-connected in social groups. Interesting. Um, there are the source of addiction is almost entirely Trump. Huh. Now, does that mean once you've been traumatized and developed some sort of dependency that that is a lifelong struggle? Absolutely not. Overwhelmingly, people who use and drink um, for periods, they use and drink problematically for periods, and most of them recover on their own, without treatment. Uh, all the old adages about addiction and alcoholism really do need to be thrown out the window. Uh, they're inaccurate. The data does not bear that out. Uh, the once an addict, always an addict. Uh, it's just not true. Yeah, that, 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 that's really interesting. And I wonder if we, should, if we should segue into that discussion. I do, though, before we do that, I want to go back and it's because uh, Meg, we talked earlier today, and you mentioned that um, you mentioned this documentary to me, right? This documentary mm -hmm. docudrama on on Netflix, and I think it's really germane to what we're talking about uh, in terms of the, the the divide or the alleged divide in America, right? Because uh, Sean, <laughs> you said before the before the show, which I thought was really really great. Oh, we were on, we were talking on the phone earlier, and you were saying that like back in the '90s, right? Uh, they, the, the whole thing was like, you know, don't go to the comment section on the, uh, you know, don't go to the comment, avoid. And then now you're like, the entire internet is now the comment section. Like that right. is what it is. This toxic brew of people protected by their computer screens and just spewing out complete nonsense. So anyway, Meg, maybe you want to just give us sort of a little bit of a gist of what that's about and sort of what your what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of a marriage between my husband and me. My, my husband does uh, machine learning, uh, and he does it uh, for marketing. So the reason you enjoy or want to buy what you want to buy, when you want to buy it, is probably because of him. Um, and he scared me really early on with the capabilities that, uh, that his industry and many others have to manipulate people. Uh, he had gotten to a point with Amazon with an algorithm he had designed that they could tell you with 98% certainty what you would put in your cart before you did it. Without you being on the page, you signed on to Amazon, they knew what you were leaving with. 
we are, and this is where we come into questions of does free will actually exist? Ah, oh, that's an interesting topic. Very interesting. Yeah, I would love to talk to you about that. Um, I think okay. I want to I want to add something though about uh, these algorithms because I think um, <clears throat> these are very powerful technologies, and social media is a very powerful technology in and of itself, and something that has high value. And so it's like, to me, it's not the collection of data. It's not the it's not the algorithms. It's who is allowed to do what with them, and who is in charge. So that that's actually what the uh, the docu I don't even know what it's half documentary half like live action something something uh, was it called. It it's called uh, Social Dilemma. The Social Dilemma. I have, I have the th article right here. I have not, by the way, seen the documentary. I just printed out this um, article before the show. Same. You will be as horrified as I've been since I've met my husband after you watch this. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it makes sense. Um, you know, back in the 80s, we had five news stations. We probably had three local newspapers. And it was their job to keep our attention, but there wasn't that much noise, right? So as technology has advanced, the war for your attention has grown exponentially because you're not the commodity. Uh, everybody says the data is the commodity, the data, your attention right. is the commodity. So keeping you looking at things, uh, for as long as possible is the game. Um, and that is so they can sell you things, uh, that's so they can steer your decision-making. Um, what are some of the other things that they covered? It's, there's just some crazy stuff because in order to get your attention, what do you think news has to do? I mean, you know this answer. Yeah. You've known yeah. it for years. Yeah, <laughs> sensationalism. Sensationalism. Yeah. Yeah. So we stop having a middle because uh -huh. everything revolves around technology and everyone's trying to get everyone's attention. And we know the sexier the story, the more salacious truth doesn't matter anymore uh, because people, ethics, look, that's a whole a topic for a whole other day. Yeah. Uh, well, Seriously, because this is what my husband did for years, and he asked me two years ago, he's like, the Scientologists have asked if I'd come do some work for them, and I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Oh, <laughs> Talk about ethics. <laughs> Talk about <laughs> fucking ethics. But it's hard, because when they're like, so, but they're going to give me $2 million. Yeah, well, there's that. Right? So all of a sudden, it's, oh. And then yeah. you start to understand how good people slowly start moving towards really horrifying positions. Right. right. The people who surrounded Nixon were really ethical guys. They were known to be like stand-up guys, very ethical, but inch by inch, small decision by small decision, you find yourself one day, you know, uh, giving to charity and helping the old lady across the street and doing the right thing when nobody's watching. And a year later, you're chucking bottles at, you know, protesters and showing up arms somewhere. Yeah. Well, what were you going to say, Sean? Um, well, I was just going to I mean, I think that this is, uh, 
it really it, we you do have to talk about about free will and truth and 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 all of those subjects to really get to the core of why this is a problem because i you know i, I think that <laughs> Not to disparage psychology at all, because I have a lot of respect for it, but in, in, a, in a sense, humans are not that difficult to figure out. Our motivations and our interests and things like that are not that difficult to figure out uh, in terms of what we want. We want, yeah, exactly. Uh, social, social credibility is a big one. Um, and because social credibility helps helps with mating, and so in terms of evolutionary psychology, it seems like you know it's it, uh, group belonging, uh, meaning, money, uh, sex, uh, power. You know, all those things are pretty are pretty basic. And so if you know that, and you look at what you look watch people's behavior, uh, it's not that hard to predict what they're going to do next, what step they're going to take next, or want. Like uh, since two thousand. 10, and this is in the documentary, I was shocked at this statistic. Girls between the ages of 13 and 15 saw a 160% increase in hospital inpatient hospitalizations due to self-harm. Wow. That is astonishing statistic. That is, that is almost in, at the advent of Facebook. Right. And, and, so, and Instagram and Instagram, all this stuff. Yep. Yep. Right. Is that based on, on, on fear of missing out, not measuring up all those kinds of things? Uh, well, Instagram, I hate Instagram for this reason. It is horrible for your self-esteem. Uh, I say this day in and day out to patients, stop comparing your insides to other people's outsides. Mm -hmm. And that is all Instagram is. Look at my fantastic life. Life, yeah, it's so cool. I'm so cool. I do all these sexy things. It's I do all these perfect. trips. But that, but that goes right to what you're talking about, Sean. That goes right to your talk about because you're talking about we're talking about the 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 desire to and what you're talking about too, Meg. Right? This the, and well, yeah, the beauty ideal, for example, is not. Mm -hmm designed by Madison Avenue. The beauty ideal is designed by evolution, uh, certain proportions, certain things like that. Now, sure. uh, obviously, Madison Avenue has made everybody thinner, a little thinner, but you know, the proportion of the hips to waist to bust uh, uh, ratio is, is for evolution is uh, kind of set. And so if you're comparing yourself to that- I would argue that wealth has a lot to do with that as well. Mm -hmm. um, different cultures, wealth, uh, and, and being, of ha and having stature has a lot to do with um, whether you're tan or you're pale, whether you're thin or you're thicker, depending on the cultural context, bigger women are considered, you know, to be very sexy. Right. In some cultures, right? Like, so, but thinness in this country mm -hmm. means that you can control yourself. It means that you have access to a gym. It means all these, these, implications that are associated with status status and that's what and that seems to be the gist right that and that's sort of what i think you were talking about too uh sean is yeah this sort of we know relentless we know right a relentless drive for status is sort of the 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 the, the motivating sort of thing behind everything everyone does <laughs> yeah. right and well, and you really have to be really self self reflective to even notice that Mm -hmm. But it's, but even if you take that, what is status? What does that serve? Oh, well, I think that means more access to women, mm -hmm. to sex, right? Um, security, so shelter, food, um, 
And that's really what we still, we're still like our little reptilian brains are still controlling us, right? Absolutely. Um, it's just gotten so much more complicated. And so I would think that, you know, given the technology that we have and given the, given the, the wiring of the planet of the internet, I mean, th what alternative really was there? I mean, the, the, the only thing I can say is accountability, right? Because, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, we talk about him, you know, being, being kind of a douche when he started Facebook. He started as a rating system for women, okay? So it evolved immediately into this status machine like you're talking about. And what else would it have done? How would, how would you, Meg, have prevented this from happening if you had an opportunity to design an ideal system? Oh, from behind the veil of ignorance. <laughs> ah, <laughs> we were right. pulling out some rolls. <laughs> right. That's the perfect way to design any system. Mm-hmm. So what does that right. look like? What does that look like in terms of social media and how our system functions right now? Well, if you took any of their engineers and uh, and you you really do have to watch this because it goes into these are the these aren't these are heavy hitters. These are the people who designed the like button, the people who um, designed strategy uh, for uh, building up uh, membership in Facebook and various various other major technology companies. Um, they didn't know what they were doing at the time. They didn't realize that this is really what would come out of it. And then someone could take advantage totally legally of what they had made to hurt people, mm -hmm. which is the interference into the elections um, and doing the micro-targeting of individuals where you can, my husband can target you to mm -hmm. the television in the room in your mm -hmm. house that you're at and feed you stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's only a certain number of times that you have to hear those messages that they just sink in and you just accept them. They just become a right. part of your subconscious. Um, <laughs> so in order, they're realizing this in retrospect, but a huge effort has to be put in to moderate, to not allow polarizing uh, to, to create algorithms that do not chase after 100% of somebody's attention. But what that also means is that shareholders are going to have to be okay not constantly making more money. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, no, yeah, that's, that's a tall tough. order. It's, it seems because because what you're asking them to do, Clay, is right now they're running the machine flat out, okay, and they're it's just as whatever can be done will be done. And uh, now you're asking them to pull back. What's the incentive? Is it is it a you know is it legal sanction? Is it do you break up Facebook? Do you like what is it? Well, they're short term thinking, right? So we tend to think short term. I mean, this administration is it's a study in short term thinking. Uh, but people tend to think short term, right? They're thinking, but my shareholders, what they're not thinking is if we don't stop this, we may destroy our culture. We may destroy humanity. And I'm not talking 20 years down the line. I'm talking shortly because these tools are being used to destabilize all the major democracies in the world. All of them. Oh yeah. All of them. Big time. Because most people aren't aware of their own biases. They're, they don't even understand what cognitive dissonance is. I tried to talk to my mom about it the other day. I'm <laughs> like, I think the reason you like Trump is because 
you think you're a good person, and if Trump's a bad person, then that would make you a bad person. Exactly. Therefore, mm-hmm. Trump's not a bad person. Exactly. I think that's exactly the kind of reasoning. And I just, like, I just want to jump in here really quickly. I think listening to what you're saying, Meg, and also listening to what I think Sean is getting at, and I tend to agree with it, is that uh, it, it seems to me that the solution, there, there's there's two sort of solutions here. I think one it has to be the force of law. You're not going to get people to do the right, right. thing uh, right. just because they want to, just because it's the right thing to do. For all the reasons we just talked about, right? Because of status and all that kind of stuff and the, and just the rat race of the trying to climb up that ladder is such that people will continue to do that unless they have unless they have a really strong and infor- a uh, strong sort of incentive not to which is a legal incentive. Yeah. I think the second the second piece and this is what I think is most critical and this is a lot of what we, I think we'd like to talk about in the next topic and that is people understanding their biases, people understanding how they think, understanding evolutionary psychology and why we do what we do. And I, I try Absolutely. to like hammer this all the time because it's so important and this is a problem that pervades the right and the left. It is a human problem. And, and, and in terms of bridging the, the, the gap that we were talking about earlier in this show, the only way to do that is for everyone to A, understand that we are just meat machines walking around doing what we do just like our cats and our dogs. We are just doing what we do. We're not special. There's no ghost riding around in the machine. We are just doing what we do. And we are, we are literally, uh, we are s- slaves to our cognitive biases. And then and then the people that prey precisely on those cognitive biases for money are deplorable, A. But B, this is the kind of where, this is where law has to come in and, and, and put up a dam. And it's also I why- that's possible. People well, can't grasp these things. Well, this is why, okay. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to, I have to jump on here because it, it, it is why uh, people who are religious hate evolution because they don't want to see us as meat machines and they don't want to see us as, as you know, have, being able to have our strings pulled. And this yeah. is at the same time as the religious organizations and the religious right are pulling the strings. But it's the same thing as people who believe in conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah, it's definitely the same. None, of them, none of them want to believe they cannot function knowing they have control over nothing, it is all meaningless, and there's nothing happening after you die. They can't handle that. Uh, Yeah, they can't, they literally cannot. Extinction anxiety, the death, the fear of death, right? Fundamentally, right? Isn't that what drives this whole goddamn thing? If you really get that right, we're talking, we're really, I think we're starting to get down to brass tacks here, which is great because we love doing that on the show, which is just like digging and digging and digging until we get to like the real fundamental stuff, right? Because we're talking about the drive for status, which ultimately is connected to the drive for survival, which is ultimately connected to a fear of death, right? And, and religion is built out of the fear of death. I mean, that is its whole promise. That's the whole promise of religion, right? Don't worry about dying. Don't worry about it. That obsession, that existential obsession that every human being has, it's fine. Don't worry. At one, you'll be fine when you die. Dude, I remember when I went through my, my a serious phase where I struggled with my mortality uh, as an atheist and knowing what that really means. Um, there was a solid, like, month-long period where I would weep. I would weep. And I actually call myself the worst atheist in the world because you know when that stopped? Or I said, maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. 
Just the question, right. just the hope, the hope that there might be something more, that you might have something after this, that this might all not be for nothing. You know, that hope right there is what people cling to. And that's what, that's the loophole, the giant door that the, that the religious, or they just drive right in. They ride right in and a loophole you could drive a truck through. That's a Seanism right there. <laughs> I say it, I say that too much. <laughs> yeah, no, but I like it because it's so true. I mean, you know, it's exactly right. I mean, it is it 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 really fits certain situations, and particularly this one, which is it is it, you go back to that thing. It's like, oh, don't worry, you. There's no one pull. No one can pull your strings. You have free will. You're an individual. All these things, but meanwhile, subscribing to the exact like the most string pulling sort of philosophy that 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 there is. Is, right, this idea that uh, we need to act a certain way, we need to hate certain people, right? We need to exclude certain groups, all based on this idea of uh, from from uh, this from authority, some old authority in a book, or 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 like you said, Meg, uh, conspiracy theories, which are, which have in a lot of places are starting to take the place of They're some religions, similar. right? It's the same kind of psychological profile. Mm -hmm. People who who are afraid and who cannot handle not being able to control what's happening. So if they feel they're in the know, that there's someone they can point to, that, that this is what's happening, it makes them feel better. That's, that's basically conspiracy theorists. Absolutely. And, and you know what? I, I can't blame them in some sense, right? I also want to feel better. So something that Sam Harris says from time to time, and I agree, uh, despite my uh, disagreements with Sam Harris on many other issues. But one thing that I think he gets really right is that um, is that we are in, oh, I lost it. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen out there, I often lose my train of thought. I like to think it's because I'm so goddamn smart that the idea just flies through my head so quickly that I just can't keep up. But really, I just lose my train of thought sometimes, and that just happens. So let's just, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just shut up now. <laughs> there was something someone said earlier that I wanted to like talk about, and it's gone already, so. <laughs> well, I could, I could try to tie this all together a little bit here, and that is that um, – when we talk about this need to know, need to, to look forward to an afterlife, all of these things, and the need for status, all these things are feeding into hierarchy, into building hierarchy. And by the way, the same with the anti-democratic aspects of it. Like you say, we all agree that we're that democracy is, is under siege, it's, it's being destroyed, and it's, it's being done consciously by the same forces who want to drive us back to feudalism, which is this pyramidal hierarchy with only a few people at the top and is the absolute opposite that is the opposite of democracy so we're all talking about the same the same trends the same uh, overall forces in our world so the sad part about that is there is no solution to that i spend a great deal of time talking about logical fallacies cognitive biases what they are what, in response to people's posts on Facebook, I'm like, okay, so what this is this, this is this, this is this, and it's, people don't want to hear it. It's just. It, it flies in the face of, I am someone who's in control. Mm-hmm. That's exactly so that right. That's it right there, right? If I'm telling you, you likely don't even have free will. Yeah. Well, yeah. You want to hear. <laughs> it's, it's like. 
It's like if there's a, you know, I often talk about these bad ideas as munitions because that's exactly what they are. But it goes a step beyond that because these are munitions that people grab onto and they hold the bomb inside themselves that is going to destroy them. They, they literally, you know, they will hold on to these bad ideas for dear life and then the bad ideas blow up and destroy their life or destroy their democracy or, or well, whatever. It's a scalable thing. Individuals frequently, when they're afraid of something, like your greatest fear, um, they will bring it to them. They will create that very situation they fear the most because the methods they use that they think will help them to avoid it actually make it more certain. Like uh, an example, I'm afraid my husband's going to leave. So you get more controlling, mm -hmm. right? So you get more clinging. So you're calling more. So you get suspicious. So you start doing these things that actually create the very situation you're trying to avoid. Um, That's fascinating. Exactly the same way. Watch that in yourself. Everybody does it. I do it. I have of to course. look at my biggest fears, right? My biggest fear is death. I am waiting for the singularity. I do not want to die. Download me. I'm <laughs> right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm right there with you. You know, I yeah, mean, I, know. I, I, I've, I, after reading the book and everything, you know, I did for a while, I was kind of like, okay, I just have to live long enough to, to live forever. You know, that was the, that's the thing. But, um, I've kind of given up on that idea. I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. But at the same time, if, you know, something could come along and, uh, we could figure out a way to continue our experience. I sign me up, you know? Oh my God. Absolutely. I'm sign me the totally fuck up. Down. Sign me the fuck. Well, like, well, I'm an early adopter of like technology ideas. Like, sign me the fuck up, you know. Um, and you know, I, I wanted to. I I, I was thinking uh, in connection to what we were just talking about, and in terms of solutions, right? And one thing that I keep coming back to in my own writing and my own thought about this issue, because uh, I know all three of us are people who on this call are 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 people who who think deeply about things, who consider our, our part in things, who want to find uh, in terms of things about like self-actualization, right? And transcendence, like how do you get to a place of essentially being happy and not like happy, like joyous, like and free and all that kind of stuff, like, you know, running around with, with, with my shirt off or something like that. I mean, I, what I mean is just like a, some sense of equanimity, just like, you know, a sense of just like, of just being okay day in, day out without like, and, and I'm a person who struggled my entire life with depression, with drug addiction. I've been up and I've been down. I've been back. I've been forth. So like, I, this is stuff that's very salient to me, right? Um, and I found the greatest peace that I've been able to find is in understanding my cognitive biases and then and and has been in realizing that I'm a meat machine, has been in looking at what death is in the face right and uh, and saying holy shit that is terrifying mm -hmm. but but it also but listen to this it also gives me a really like sort of like uh, intense appreciation for what i have right now right mm -hmm. and then i'm able to live more presently so i think the selling point is is really in terms of in terms of a solution here is are you happy or are you not? And most people are going to answer that question if they're honest with themselves. They're going to say, actually, I am not really that happy. I, yes, I have a nice job. Yes, I have X, Y, I have, I have a wife and I have a car. But there's an existential angst that I just sort of live with and it's not great. And no matter how, what sort of 
thing I acquire, I don't get there. And I think like, this is how you get there. And and I'm not, I don't tend, I don't claim to be a guru or have this figured out. I mean, (laughs) we've had, Sean and I have had our experience with gurus. Like Mm -hmm. we're not, I'm not talking, I'm not calling myself a guru, but I, I just think that this is a way toward some level of equanimity. So with one of the topics we were going to discuss, I actually found that, uh, the concepts used in the first 164 pages of the big book, there are several concepts in there that have shaped how I basically wear life like a loose garment. I mean, things don't stress me out. Um, bad things happen. We're, we're back in court and custody, right? In the middle of the pandemic that I had to go out and save all my patients, you know, without any PPE, like really terrible things happen. Um, but some of those lessons and the fundamentals are, uh, self-centeredness is the plague of the world. Constant reflection on why you do what you do. And if you don't believe you have a problem, don't even bother working on it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. that well, I love that. It goes along with uh, stages of change, right? Which is a, it, it's a concept, it's a, it's a psychological concept that people move through change in various stages. And if you're in a pre-contemplation stage, you don't even think you have a problem, right? Like there's no problem at all. Pre-contemplation or Contemplation, but I have something going on, right? Then you move into action because you've determined you do in fact have a problem. And so now I got to do something about it. Um, And then you go into maintenance and then there's relapse and it's not always necessary, but this is with all behavior and trying to change behavior. So we keep trying to give tasks, um, opportunities, have conversations with people who are in pre-contemplation. Mm-hmm. They're not ready to change. They haven't made that determination. So don't bother. Well, I and, will literally just let, let it go. Well, and also those things, the denial of that there's a need to change is central to the core of their identity. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's Absolutely. where it comes to, you know, America denying is basically in complete and total denial that it is a racist country or that it is a fascist country. But yet we announce we announce that anti-fascism is anti-American and we announce that anti-racism is anti-American. So what are we announcing? We're a racist and fascist country in denial. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It was such a strange experience for me because amongst my peers or my contemporaries, I spend almost all of my time with people of color. Um, I, my, most of my friends, all my employees, 98% of them, um, everybody I treat. I felt like I had a really solid understanding of what the, the struggle is and all the myriad of different things that impact these communities and how it impacts them. And because of what I do for a living, I think deeply on that, right? And I think of 
like overwhelmingly all the different factors. And in the past, I will honestly say in the past four months, I didn't think I could understand it any better, but I do. And I've gotten more and more angry. I've gotten more and more angry mainly because there are still people saying that this doesn't matter. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Ugh. I just felt like a like a like a wave of emotion just sort of come over me just then, just because I mean, this is the kind of stuff that just gets me that just gets me fired the fuck up, right? Because it, it is that it's that denial. Um, you know, I and and you know what's so frustrating no, and yeah. and, and so exactly. Exactly. What's so I, frustrating? I have a news item when, when you're done. Go for it. Go for it. No, you you were you were saying. I, I was just going to say, you know, this week I, uh, I I posted on Instagram today uh, this week about this experience I had being at right. I played hockey for years and had uh, some really racist experience playing hockey here in New Jersey wow. um, over the last, uh, but, but certainly, and it really like, kicked into high gear after 2016, such that by 2017, I'd quit playing hockey because I just didn't want to walk into hostile environments all the time where I was literally being called names, being being physically, being physically attacked, um, on the ice and and look i mean yes it's true that hockey is a violent sport but not like this not like deliberate elbows to the head during face-offs right like i'm just saying oh stop stop it exactly exactly and so when people say that and i'm like or that this racism was so long ago or slavery was so long ago it is just so insulting and 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 like i almost feel i can get and understand the racists because they're just delusional but what really gets me is the people that are ostensibly my friends right people who are uh or that i played with teammates right who they they won't even talk to me about it. Like let like let alone actually stick up for me. They they, they don't even want to talk about race because they it makes they're so fragile. Talk about white fragility, so fragile. They can't no. even have a conversation about it, and it just kills me. It kills me because these are friends, right? These are people that I want to be close to. I want to play hockey with them, but I don't want to have to go walk back into that rink and know that I'm in it on my own. First of all, I cannot count on any protection help. And B, why would I want to go back to a place where I have those kind of memories, right? Well, as a therapist, um, I feel like you should be free to go wherever the hell you want. Yes. Um, And why let them win? On the other hand, I've been in situations where I've genuinely asked questions, and this is a problem we have in discussing sensitive issues, I'm very well trained on how to ask questions in gentle, thoughtful ways. Um, And merely asking a question has gotten me berated to the point. Simple question, right? I really honestly, genuinely want to know at the beginning of all the, the new language around what's being called racist, what's racist and how it's evolved. Um, I asked, I said, are you doing a disservice by calling unconscious bias racism, right? Like is, because I feel like they're different terms. And this was way back. This was way back at the beginning. And I just wanted to understand, right? I'm like, are we, are we minimizing a word? Are we, are we going to lose all meaning of that word? Does it mean anything? And I asked a genuine question. Do you think that it diminishes the strength of the of what racism is 
by applying it to unconscious bias. Um, and it was an honest question. And I got torn a new asshole by probably 50 people. And then when I asked for an, a better understanding of how I had hurt people so that I could avoid it in the future, I got yelled at for demanding an answer from a person of color. That's a complicated, that's complicated. That, that, that gets really complicated really it's quickly. It, there's it's, a demand, but then there's a genuine conversation to be had. Definitely, definitely. I got that with uh, just female stuff, right? Mm -hmm. When men want me to explain what it feels like to be, to have to work twice as hard um, in an environment, be twice as talented and be discounted because I have breasts. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. For what it feels like to walk into a room and to be dismissed immediately and mm -hmm. be talked over constantly. Um, I've had guys ask me to talk to them about this. And I'm like, just fucking do the work yourself. Yeah, well, right, right. I, I gotta <laughs> jump. Like, I gotta jump I, in because I think um, what we're seeing here, and 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 Christoph and I talked about this last week. You know about uh, and and the week before. We talk about racism every single week, but you know the tip of the iceberg is somebody uh, somebody using the N word. But all this other stuff is much much larger part of the iceberg. And what we're seeing is since Trump got elected, we're just seeing it's it's just a it's just an upwelling, an oozing, a, a, a you know a volcanic kind of a of a, a slow volcanic eruption. Of, of crap, you know, ever since Trump got elected, you know, coming up from uh, from the really the subconscious or unconscious of the nation of our, of our history and our past. And it's like, and, and the thing is, is that the people who are most trying to to put a lid on all this are are, are the, the Christians uh, and, you know, uh, who just they are desperate to be able to come up with some kind of narrative that does not have them at the center of racism in, in America. <laughs> so true. They're they're desperate. And so like, this is, this is a news article, um, about this, a uh, pastor, Rich Penkoski, uh, of warriors for Christ DC chapter. And he filed a federal lawsuit, uh, against black lives matter. And you ready for this? He actually accused black lives matter of being a secular religion. And therefore, uh, but they were putting a religious sentiment out into the public square. And, you know, and, and, and this is their fear, their fear. And actually, it, it really works well for us on the radical secular because we spend so much time talking about justice and racial justice that we do believe that that is part of secularism. OK, so this guy actually said what we believe is that, you know, uh, uh, saying that equality matters is really secular humanism. And, and he got it right. But, you know, he's trying to then twist the law to to get his you know to, to get christianity as as uh, you know i don't know if he believes it's the state religion or what he thinks it is but it's it's so twisted anyway i'm done it's, it's the uh wolf and victim's clothing nothing enrages mm. me more than the wolf and victim's clothing Right. Oh man, that might be a show title right there. I don't know. Yes. That's a, that, that, that's close, oh. man. That's close to a show title yeah. right there. We're always looking for a show title as we as we go. So, but that's that feeling when all of a sudden you have the right claiming that like the left is hyper violent. I'm like, mm -hmm. are you insane? Like, are you insane? Who's who's rolling into into cities with pickup trucks and, and AR-15s? Come on! You can't claim that someone's being violent when they're defending themselves against you. 
Well, I mean, you can, what is this? <laughs> but that's the, it, it's infuriating and they do it in all different ways. They don the cloak of a victim and it makes me angry because I actually care about victims Right, actual victims. Right, actual victims. (laughs) It's rage-inducing. It's absolutely rage-inducing. We spend all this time on the show talking about the just world fallacy, which is really another word for victim blaming, you know, and and so, and they also reverse victim and oppressor. That's their constant, you know, so it's just, it is a, it is just a, they have got the perfect mind fuck. I don't know how else to describe it. Oh, no, we're in a, what, would be a toxic relationship. This is mm. what it would feel like if you were in a relationship with a very damaged person um, and just scale it. That's all. That's um, fascinating. All the same things. You can watch the abuse cycle, right? Like he does the shitty thing. He does the nice thing. You know, there's a period of rest for a little while. Then another shitty thing happens. Then he does a nice thing. And the cycle just keeps on continuing. And I actually have a theory where the people who continue to support him and think he's a wonderful person have horrific relationships. Mm-hmm. This seems normal. That's the, right. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's really interesting that you brought that up because we talked about last week about a some racist uh, sheriff out in Arkansas who uh, who berated his girlfriend for talking within like the most, I mean, N-word, 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 N-word. She was speaking to a black clerk at the supermarket and he in the parking lot, she recorded it, thank, thankfully, uh, she lost it. And again, this guy is a you know, a racist, obviously, uh, also a racist with a lot of power and uh, and no doubt a Trump supporter. And this is that kind of this is what his relationship looks like. This is what his relationship looks like. Right. So Trump's behavior is fine. Exactly. Right? Normal. <laughs> normal, normal, of course. Right. This is how men, real men act. Right. This is how and real men are. Those men, women who've been with those men. Oh, yeah. That's fine. Yeah, I'm used to that. Yeah, that's how it goes. You know what's really interesting too? I wonder, and I'm just taking the analogy. Maybe I'm straining the analogy a little bit here, but I wonder too: it is how is a Democratic Party and Democrats in America, the left in America, also in an abusive relationship with 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 the Republican Party, right? Because the left continues to think that the Republican oh. Party, up until very recently, but the left continues to think that the Republican Party is acting in good faith, right? That the Republican Party really is, really is, has the same goals as as we have talked about Both here, sides. which is reducing human suffering with uh, with uh, with with what's best for all Americans, like, and that is dem- demonstrably not true anymore if it ever was it certainly isn't now and but still you have these folks on the left coming in and saying oh no we have to understand oh no we have to try and we have to negotiate oh no and and it's like it sounds to me like an abusive relationship frankly so if you're actually trying to resolve conflict it's not helpful to say we all know you're a dick in your <laughs> right? So one-on-one, you want to resolve the conflict. You want to bring people closer together. You want to create space for more moderate Republicans. Welcome everybody back in. You can't vilify them. You can't. 
um, if there's any hope of anybody working together into the future. Because once they do that, once the Republicans have, are evil, horrible, 100%, there is not going to be any cover for any Democrat ever in the future working with them in any capacity. It's but, tough. I mean, we can't negotiate with it. We, I mean, you can't negotiate. It, it's a tough balance strike. Go, go ahead, Sean. Go, Sean. I know you have something to say. I, I, on I just, I was just going to say, but they are, they are fucking dicks. They are evil. There is, you know, they, they are, it's, it, it, there's no compromise because of what we talked about earlier. You know, they're not interested in better education or solving the uh, addiction problem or, or, you know, helping reality, people. They say they are, but right. their actions say different. So what's your psychological education? They they want they want to address this opioid crisis, yeah. right? They want to solve it. Please, they, they, but... they care about education and children. Yeah, absolutely. We're just not going to give them any money. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so as I was going to say, I mean, like. Betsy DeVos, fuck you, you know. Oh, um, fuck. But, oh, my God. But, fuck but, you, Betsy DeVos. If you're listening yeah. to this, go fuck yourself. And no one else will. How do you wake up in the morning? Oh, how do you live you with yourself? Look in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so from a psychological... From a psychological standpoint, what's the solution? How do you stop the gaslighting? How do you, you know, if you, if you, if you do want, like, say you believe in this whole divided country narrative that we can actually all get together and sing Kumbaya and get back together, how do you do that? So, A, the second you feel you're being gaslit, um, which is almost all day, every day. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you absolutely stop giving credence to wherever that information is coming from. You stand strong in your position and know you are not crazy. You can still critically assess information, but when you, when you start questioning whether or not you're sane, stop. You are not insane. Just stop that thinking in its tracks. Moving forward, there is going to be, and I, I'm, I fear for this for both of my parents. My father, last year, had a long conversation with me where he believes he is a white nationalist. Wow. Father. And started walking down, uh, you know, IQ scores and blah, blah, blah. I was oh, like, I've heard it yeah, all. Yeah, there are epigenetic factors associated with that. And all those studies have been thoroughly torn apart. Um, there's regional differences there. Don't even get me started on IQ tests. But I walk down logically, rationally, and as a professional in this field with my father, who is still a member of the bar of good standing in New York and New Jersey, argued in front of the Supreme Court. Brilliant man. It's not going to be reason and rationality. Mm. So... When I have to bring someone, frequently I have patients in front of me, and it's not in their best interest, to be honest with me, to develop a bond with me. So trust me. I have to validate their feelings. As much as I may hate them, I step in and I'm like, this sucks. Yes, this sucks. It feels shitty. This whole thing feels shitty. This sucks. You may not even be an addict. 
I'm not here to tell you you're an addict. You know, all you, you think about what their fears are and you validate that. Not the behavior, but the fear. I know you're afraid that your kids aren't gonna have a future, right? Like when you're in a trailer park and all you've got is white, you're terrified that like the only thing that your kids have is going to be now seen as bad. They're not even thinking about how it affects communities of color. They're not. They're thinking of themselves and they're driven by fear. Republicans, this has been gone over in the literature. Oh yeah. Well, and yeah, and they've, they've trumped up this idea of white genocide, that even, even the intermarriage with, with uh, people of color is the dilution and the destruction of the white race. So there's therefore, there's, there's nowhere for them to go. There's literally nowhere because, uh, you know, we all have a little bit of DNA from Africa in us, you know, or a lot. And, 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 you know, that, that brings up that story of that firefighter who was like, he took a DNA test and he was like 17% black. And, uh, you know, you heard that story, right? And, and, and he was ostracized all of a sudden, as soon as everybody found out that he had 17% black, the other white guys who probably also had 17% black, you know, were, were harassing him and he actually won a lawsuit and he won damages because of that so yeah this involved this involved them on christmas time hanging a noose on the uh, as an ornament on the on to put things in perspective with, like with that's where 17 percent on the 17 percent just yeah. to, just to put things in perspective what we're talking are about we here that isolated that things like that are just so shocking to us i mean i'm all over the place i know people all over the world it's mm -hmm. horrifying where is it not horrifying <laughs> I know exactly yeah. where in the where is it that like right and what and I, I talk about this a lot in my writing and online and that is if you get a group of men together particularly white men but men together uh, typically it devolves into toxicity very very quickly so frats are an obvious example right um, old Dark boys reasons. they're like just disgusting that or and that and then also you know, uh, wealthy groups of uh, people at the top of corporations, which are usually men, right? Uh, top of law firms, uh, top of financial firms, right? Like once you have this sort of little boys club, things get toxic so fast. And I can imagine, I don't, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm not an expert. I always do disclaimers on this show. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about firefighters, but I, but I do know something about when men get together. And I think that uh, in, uh, I played on hockey teams, right? I know exactly what happens when men get together and the misogyny comes out, the homophobia comes out, and the racism comes out. So uh, I think we had touched on this not too long ago, that, uh, that people go from being good people to engaging in bad acts in inches. Right. right. Um, and with particular acts, it has a outsized impact. That first step into violence that you act out upon, which is not in defense of yourself or somebody else, that's a huge shift, right? That first time you take advantage of a woman in some way, shape, or form, mm -hmm. even if it's smacking an ass, something time, making a comment about a woman on the street. Once that line is crossed, that's a big one. Um, and then the cohort is supportive of these things. Right. So you no longer feel bad. Exactly. I have a question that this brings up, okay? 
Um, and I've heard both sides of this, and I don't really know, not being an expert, uh, what is the validity of the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Milgram Experiment? So the Stanford Prison Experiment would never, ever, ever have been done uh, again because it was horrifically traumatizing to everybody involved. Um, but recent research has actually shown that that is not the case. They found more ethic, ethical ways of designing the research. Mm -hmm. um, and that is not necessarily true, uh, that people will take on kind of a Lord of the Flies sort of approach uh, if given the opportunity. And actually, along with that, the real Lord of the Flies kids, there, were, there was a group of about 15 Australian boys who were trapped on an island for a year. They all survived. They learned to hunt. They didn't kill each other. It's like the opposite. Lord of the Flies. So, so how do you square that then? Okay, so you've got you've got the real world situation where you see this escalation of compromise, ethical compromises, and then violence, and then you know heinous things like genocide going all the way on up the ladder. How do you square that with the other observation of cooperation and pro-social behavior? It's a great question. Cognitive dissonance. Hmm. Have you read mistakes were made? Oh, I have. Yes, you know, I, I have. have. We, yes, we've talked about that. And that I, I actually read that, Sean, because you suggested it. And then Meg and I later talked about it because that was one of the most important books I've read ever, frankly. We just mm. did a podcast and I tagged you on. I was like, you're going to want to listen. Yeah, I remember. I remember. Yes, yes, I remember. <laughs> um, I stand her so hard. Oh, my God, I love her. Yeah, I used she's to be brilliant. involved in a group, uh, which is called uh, Scientific Skepticism, which is a terrible name. But basically... <laughs> Uh, it, it is a group of people who are actively uh, fighting against kind of like wellness bullshit uh, and, you know, conspirituality, the, the pseudoscience, the uh, the cults, the, uh, you know, cupping. Oh, the cupping, the fucking cupping. <laughs> Like what the fuck? Who, who even comes up with hickeys? this stuff? I mean, that's what all yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, what is like you just got in a fight with a with, with like a fucking octopus? Like what the fuck is that? You know? <laughs> and then went to do then went to do the Olympics for some reason. <laughs> it's because smart people can be told to do stupid things because they give people authority who shouldn't have authority. You know, libertarians rail against people having licenses or requiring to be licensed. But let me tell you. I've known many a life coach who is responsible for a completed suicide because they had no business doing what they were doing. And well, they can't lose their license because they, right, don't, they don't have, have one. one. They don't fucking well, have yeah, one. Yeah, well, and here's the thing every libertarian wants a licensed architect to design their house. They want a license. <laughs> right, they right, want a right, doctor right. with a license when they when they go to the hospital. They want, you know, come on. Right, it's so true. I, you know what? I want to, but we're, we're, we're running, so we're running short on time, but I, I, I do want to touch on this briefly because something you just brought up, uh, 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 Meg reminded me, we were talking about licenses and Alcoholics Anonymous is famous. It's, it's actually famous in terms of, right? Because the whole sponsor sponsee model is that basically if you are sober, you are competent to help somebody get sober. And maybe there's an argument for that, but then there's also a further argument that you are somehow like able to help them with their psychological problems. And, and so, so I think you should talk about this, Meg, because I know this is obviously your area of expertise, but I think this is one of the, and, and again, I want to use a little description 
disclaimer here because I think there's there are some people here that are in AA probably that listen to the show. Um, I have been in AA by the way for a, a, like a long long time ago mm-hmm. for a period of time. Uh, so Meg and I have that in common. Um, and uh, and so uh, so I'm not here to, dis- to disparage Alcoholics Anonymous. If that works yeah. for you, that's great. I'm just but but so that's my preface before we sort of kick off this short discussion because we are running low on time. Um, I come from a unique place where. I was in AA when I was 19 years old, um, and I left AA when I was 33. Um, so my 20s were spent in it. And the structure that most people are familiar with, people go to meetings, you talk about what's going on, there are steps somehow involved, and you have a sponsor who's there to talk to you about things. Now. The actual intent of the framework of AA is that the the groups were there to discuss the progress of the individuals as they go through their step work, the 12 steps. Um, And there are very specific instructions on how those steps are supposed to, you're supposed to go through them. And your guide is supposed to be your sponsor. So the person who is in charge of basically teaching uh, you how to do this uh, is your sponsor. Uh, Chris and I went through a fairly unique subset of AA, which is considered the most hardcore, right? Like we did it the exact way that the original, um, that they did way back in 1933, spoke all over the country about it, had tapes of me speaking. I was in. I was fully in, and it was extra culty. Um, It took me moving away from it to recognize what, how bad it really was. I did not know how to socially function at 33. Because the years where you learn to talk to people about normal things and not about, you know, AA lingo and meetings and conferences, uh, I miss those years. So there, there are a lot of culty aspects. But one of the things after going into graduate school after this and really studying uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and many other types of therapy I wanted to understand why the specific brand that uh, I'm so used to calling you Chris. I'm sorry. That's um, okay. <laughs> uh, Krista, um, <laughs> that, uh, that we went through why it did actually have a much better success rate um, than AA as a whole. I mean, it was exponentially better. The people who went through the process the way we did, most of them, if not all of them, except for us, are still so. Um, I'm sorry, I had to laugh at that one. <laughs> Everyone knows that I love my Negronis, um, and I sure do love them. Dude, big fan. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is, is I found out when I left, I'll tell you that, that's, that's another funny story. But uh, with my clinical training, I looked at what are called the first 164 pages of the big book, which was written by uh, Bill Wilson. And it describes the steps he took and how he maintained his sobriety. And as I took a look at each of those steps, I realized 
that they were a combination of motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, really tried and true. If somebody who was a skilled clinician used these techniques, changed the wording around, they would probably have the same outcome. So that blew my mind. And so I really think that the low success rate, the failures and various capacities of AA as a whole is really the result of having a non-professional give treatment, basically, mm -hmm. for a behavioral health problem. That's, um, that's really fascinating. I've been talking about writing a book about this for years. If you ever um, want a co-writer, let me know. I I, I I I want to point this out too, Meg, because and and because I first of all, thank you so much for that sort of that description of it, and and I think it's a really great way to loop this into the show that we're talking about here is that. You know, I left AA a long time ago now, um, and I spent uh, my college years basically sober, um, which is an interesting time to spend sober. Um, and <laughs> hey, I know you did too. Um, and uh, and and but so I bring this up because there are a lot of things I thought AA did wrong in retrospect. But mm -hmm. the one thing, and we talked about this, Meg, the thing that that got that it got right was self reflection, the idea of looking at oneself, and and this is the big book philosophy. This is the the big book way of doing it, right? Those first hundred sixty four pages. It's all those steps are all about looking at oneself. Yeah, it's a honestly and you are, and you yes, are exactly. Adding your your selfish, like realizing who you are essentially as a human being, like what it is to be a human being. Now, again, I don't really subscribe to what their some of their solutions were, like prayer and meditate. I mean, I'm a, I actually am a meditator, but not because I think there's solutions to this. Um, but that really but, is that's learning that you're not in control. So all the focus on religion is really teaching how to let go of control. And I have some mixed feelings about that too, right? Because I, like, and this goes to the sort of the self-actualization piece of, of, of taking ownership of one's life as opposed to as saying that one is, oh, I, there's nothing I can do about it. And there's a line to be walked there, I think, between that and, and on the other hand, um, saying that like, oh yeah, I have, I have no control over my life or I am in really truly in control of what happens in my life every day because there's there something in the middle there. There's that, the happy medium is the control that I have and I have absolute control over it is this, right? Mm -hmm. My behaviors, sometimes my thoughts, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my actions, um, that's what I can control. I can control those things to affect the change I want. Whether that change happens, I cannot control. So... The religious piece of AA really speaks to understanding where the limits of your control are so that when you reach them, you can just stop fighting. I think that's really important. And, uh, you know, and I, we, we should probably wrap it up uh, just because we're getting toward, toward the end of time. And I, I think this is a really interesting sort of way to end the show. And that is, 
right? Because I think one of the things we talked a lot about today is our solutions, right, to these, A, the divide, quote unquote, to the extent that that exists, um, and also solutions to sort of the existential problems or, or the problems that are fundamental to being human being, which is self-centeredness and selfishness, right, that drive, um, and also, uh, and, and the, the lust for status. And, and I think that one of the things that AA is good for, and it need, one need not be an AA to learn this sort of stuff, right? Um, and but like the idea of of thinking critically about oneself, thinking critically about one's beliefs, questioning why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this way? And now I'm now going to just sort of leave it over to Meg to do your final thoughts, and then Sean do your final thoughts. So uh, my truth after thinking a lot, which I'm sure we all do about the ills of the world and solutions for everything. Every time I come up with a solution, whether it's at a micro level or a macro level, it really involves actively working towards a state of being totally selfless and knowing you're never gonna get there. Mm -hmm. If an organization actively works towards helping others, really focuses on that. Um, if an individual, I focus on that all the time. I'm like, I want to be as, I want to have as little self-centeredness in me as possible. I'm never going to be free of it. I feel good helping, helping people who need help. I get something out of it. Um, but as long as it's, it's something that I continuously strive to do, I will always be a better person and I will always have better outcomes. Um, had another one, but it went away. <laughs> we lose trains of thought on this show. It's a big part of the show. Um, it's like the hours. The, the, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Sean, go ahead. Well, it's been really just interesting um, watching, watching the two of you talk about your experiences in AA because I've, I've never really been to AA, but I have when I was doing a little bit of research for the book that I uh, keep threatening to write, but probably never will. <laughs> but um, I read the I read the big book because I wanted to understand all this because I have a chapter on addiction, you know. And um, I I find that um, it's interesting that they stumbled into this uh, cognitive behavioral therapy sort of modality um, while basically making the whole thing about religion because that really is the entire big book when you when you look at it it's all about his you know finding something greater than himself and um the other thing that i really object to about about uh aa is the idea that uh, if you get better then it's because of aa but if you fail it's your own fault and there's it's really well, another one uh the way i'm probably sure that christoph and mio talked about we weren't actually real alcoholics <laughs> because when we left, oh yeah exactly that's why it didn't work for us we right. weren't real alcoholics like what I've been like, told it, that. I yeah, was told like, that. just like talking in circles it's like come yeah. on come on yeah <laughs> yeah so it's I, they're happy they weren't real alcoholics exactly they never had a problem in the first place <laughs> the, the it's very, not that we found a way to, right. to live right yeah. it couldn't possibly be that you were just posers as alcoholics basically exactly exactly <laughs> we were just posers we were just posers. we didn't really have a problem and therefore the fact that we are no now we drink successfully is means that that does not invalidate the argument right 
Right. Yeah. yeah well, so I, and, and I think the very, very best skewering of AA that I've ever seen is the Doug Stanhope routine, which everybody should watch if you haven't. It's a, it's an amazing like five minute routine. Oh, it's it's absolutely well worth watching. I mean, he talks about you know, it, 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 <laughs> there's a whole Gary Busey joke in there. It's just it's it's great. Anyway, <laughs> um, but and then and then a final thought about what you said about about selflessness, and that is, I go back to Dawkins and reciprocal altruism because I do think mm-hmm. that human morality is all based around reciprocity, right? And and altruism, helping others, not only makes you happy, but it also raises your social standing. So it's just a it's just it's a it's a um, it's it's a just a better way to live. And that's Dude, right. Yeah. It's an evolutionary benefit. It keeps us together. It keeps us alive. It keeps us functional. This, yeah. All this antisocial behavior, people not calling it out, um, basically relegating altruism to religion and poor human service workers, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's it. Well, those people are responsible for being good. The rest of us, nah. Exactly. And like the, that reciprocal altruism piece is so critical. I'm so glad you brought that up, Sean. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's uh, so anyway, but thanks. This has been a really, really great conversation. I mean, I think we hit a lot of different topics, uh, probably went a little bit longer than we than we normally do. But I think that's perfectly fine. I think we had a had a good conversation. So um, before we go. I want to once again remind everybody to make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I want to make sure that you, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that red subscribe button. That really matters. Give us a uh, give us a thumbs up. Give us a clap. Give us all that kind of positive sort of uh, feedback because that stuff really does matter for us as well. And uh, uh, please check out the Just Word Fallacy uh, Medium project. Uh, we are again posting new stuff every every week on Thursday. Thursdays. And uh, if you want to write uh, and be part of that, please write us at The Radical Secular. And uh, look, thanks everyone for being here. And thanks especially Meg for our guest for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You've been listening to The Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.